Welcome to the DLR Libraries podcast, Need to Read. Recommended reads from those in the know. Today I'm talking to Sue Rainsford. Sue is a fiction and arts writer based in Dublin. Her debut novel, Follow Me to Ground, received the Kate O'Brien Award. It was originally published in Ireland by New Island Books and then in the UK by Doubleday Books and then the US with Scribner. It's named one of the best books of 2019 by both The Guardian and The Irish Times. And her second novel, Redder Days, is coming out in March next year with Doubleday Books. So thanks for joining me today, Sue. You're mm, very welcome. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to read some things that I've re- read about your work. Um, oh dear. I, okay. well, <laughs> but I read an article that you wrote um, called Strange Devotion for the magazine and website Entropy. Mm. And you, you discussed um, things that might have led you to inspired you or led you to write your first novel in some way um you said the main character is not a girl but a fusion of soil and symbolism and then also um from your website you mentioned your interest in the corporeal inquiry and to quote your essay um, what we do to female flesh when we graft it with certain symbols and certain kinds of language and you said you were struck by tropes of horror film and by visual metaphors that are both sensual and violent. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think it's really interesting and, and very, obviously very related to what we're going to talk about today, yeah, which, which yeah. is um, uh, violence in, in literature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny, I suppose, when I was writing, when I, when I first started writing Follow Me to Grain, I was doing my MA at IADT, uh, Mavis, it's since been, it's now called ARC, but it was called Mavis at the time, Masters in Visual Arts Practices, and I was looking so much at Barbara Creed's work, The Monstrous Feminine, um, and abject theory around horror film and the female body, and how the female body is sort of fragmented often by horror film, and like I say in the essay, is grafted quite heavily with symbolism. Um, and it kind of struck me, maybe when I was three quarters of the way into writing the book, that I have this much earlier fascination with horror film. Um, and even when I was very young and probably was watching horror films I shouldn't have been watching and they imprinted on me probably in lots of really damaging ways. But a movie like Dracula, the the one... Um, that has um, Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder in it. I remember looking at that and there's that scene in a graveyard where one of the main, is it Mia? One of the main characters is getting ravished by Dracula in like a werewolf form. And that really kind of seared itself on my memory. um, This image of something that was both violent and in a strange way tender um and I think before I had words for um before terms like rape or consent were part of my vocabulary um I was sort of understanding that that's what was happening inside of this scene um and yeah and I when as I grew older and I started writing I found myself returning to these um these instances of female flesh and female bodies being used as visual metaphors or as a shortcut to certain types of meaning. And you can look at it from the point of view that then women are sort of flattened and, you know, there's, you know, this idea of the male gaze, obviously, um, and that 
the female body becomes a vehicle for plot, not an agent in plot, all, all those sorts of things. But yeah, I guess th- what I'm trying to say is that with Follow Me, I just got really interested in the sensibility, the kind of tangible uh, textures and um, and the and yeah, the visual quality of some of those of some of those images, and how you might where where violence and tenderness um, are fused in a problematic way, and how that looks in a literary text if you spend time with it in a, in a literary text, like pages and pages, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and it, it um, really comes across in your writing as well. It's it's so um, sort of different to anything I'd read in, in a long time. Um, I loved it. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> so you're, you'll be sort of expanding on that idea. Um, you've chosen to talk about representations of, of violence in, in literature. Um, I don't know if you mean um, specifically against women or sort of mainly against women, but um, maybe you could talk about uh, why you chose that. Yeah, I, so I read this book in the cut by Susanna Moore this year. I think it was one, was it a pre-lockdown read? We're kind of coming into lockdown. And I got it from Louisa in the amazing Raven, Raven books. books. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was a book, well, I'll say that Kia Wilson's um, We Eat Our Own and Susanna Moore's uh, In the Cut, are, they were just two books that really, I just could not put them down. I just found them so propulsive and so galvanizing and so inspiring and Susanna Moore's in the cut I was so drawn to because it's such an erotic book it's so heavily erotic and it's so heavily problematic and it is so violent and there is so much violence to women and done done to women um but what I love about that book is that it captures, well, it captures so much. It captures that in order for women, and this is something um, Catherine Angel speaks about really beautifully in an essay um, in the White Review, but for women to move through the world and involve themselves erotically with the world, it's inevitable that they have to embrace violence and confront violence um, and to to deny that part of your existence is ultimately to give you a very reduced experience of the erotic realm or your erotic encounters. And, and that, and that is so problematic and very difficult to resolve either in your embodied experience or on the page. And I just thought she captured so much in such, with such a deft hand and this quite slim book that, that's so meaty. And also I love how she, obviously she's composing this, she's working on a book about um, regional dialect and slang. Um, And she's collecting all of these different terms for um, genitals amongst them, but you know, all these different slang terms. Um, um, And you see sort of um, her notes that go towards compiling, that go towards the book in the middle of um, the literary, in the middle of the novel. And... What I loved was how she treats the language of violence um, or linguistic violence, or she captures how a turn of phrase 
can be as violent as a slap in the face, and how linguistic and physical violence both take up somatic space in the body. And, you know, the casual racism and the casual homophobia and the casual misogyny that runs through the book, how um, how that wears down on you over time when when you hear when you hear those kind of words being spoken. And it's something, again, in the in that amazing essay um, by Catherine Angel, she speaks about, because um, um, Jane Campion made the film of In the Cut and also made Top of the Lake um, with Elizabeth Ma- Oh my, yeah. yeah, I adore it. And again, it's that same, just the exhaustion of misogyny and how it mm. wears down on your body over time and how you're every single, or what it feels like when you're every single action and gesture or sentence entails navigating misogyny. And, and sort of anticipating reactions, anticipating to what, reactions to what exactly. you do, and yeah. how you hold yourself, or what and you how say. you're being seen. You're constantly aware of, you know, that old John Berger in ways of seeing. You know, women see themselves being seen, yeah. Um, and yeah, and how you're always kind of crawling through that dense, tangled bush of prejudice. You know, mm-hmm. and then yet, Kaya Wilson, I was so drawn to. We eat our own because it again. She is this very direct relationship with horror film and when I read when I read the blurb for the book and it had been on my list for a really long time and um it's published by Scribner who's my publisher for Follow Me to Grand in the States and I was kind of saving it as a treat for myself and then when I read it it's like why didn't I read this a year ago it would have helped me so much writing yeah. earlier drafts of my second book Redder Days um but I share with her a uh, a long time, um, you know, fixation on horror film. And even she says in one interview that she leaves horror films on in the background when she's cooking dinner, which is something I've done. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And true crime podcasts and, you know. um, And I was really drawn in her book to how she spends so much time. So it's based on the story of a a real-life horror film that got made in Colombia and had this really fraught, feverish aftermath and a huge amount of press and the director was um, tried for murder because and and, people, and and the film was banned and people were certain that um, actual violence was taking place on screen. So in that book, I love how she treats, we constantly see the, the behind the scenes construction of the props and like the making all of the labor going into this intense um, visual violence that's going to play out on screen and how that very physical, tangible construction for um, for violence that's intended to be consumed with the eyes mm-hmm. is playing out against other types of lived violence mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I haven't read Kay Wilson's one, but mm. I, I'm looking forward to it. But it does sound similar to um, that kind of obsess, obsessive, mm. like addressing our obsession with violence. Mm. Yeah. And how we say, oh, it's terrible, but then everyone's obsessed with it as mm-hmm. well, you know. Mm-hmm. And Susanna Moore, I think, does that in a, um, obviously, because her character is a teacher, she can mm-hmm. um, use that as a good way to sort of look at the language mm-hmm. and really. But her character is so curious about it, so mm. she's um, kind of leaning into it a little bit, but not. But she's just living her life as well. So, like you're saying, like there's violence everywhere, um, but she can't 
do anything different. Like she's yeah. just, it's all around her. She lives in New yeah. York City and she lives on her own. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I love that scene where she gets into the car with Malloy, the um, the police officer who, so at the very start of the book, there's the, there's a murder, there's this gruesome murder and she, um, in a bar where she's, where she's with a student. And then um, the, the police come to question her about whether or not she saw anything. And, you know, she gets into the car with Malloy and he says to her, still getting into cars with strange men. You know, it's like, what do you expect me to do? You're, yeah, you're police and you asked me to get in. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. You're, she's being reprimanded every step of yeah, the way like just for being in the world. Yeah. Everything she does is provocative. Yeah. 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 I, I, I really loved it. I get recommended a lot of books, but I, that was the first one in, in a while that I just was like, oh my God, I, I just, oh, I didn't actually read it. I listened to it. Oh yeah, you mentioned, yeah. So yeah. it kind of took me out of it. The actor is great, but she's mm. doing little accents for every okay. character. Yeah. Um, and because it's a sort of a study on language and how they speak, mm. um, she really went into the dialect of each mm. act. So it kind of, I would have preferred to imagine that myself. In just one narrative voice. Yeah, yeah, so it kind of took me out of it a little bit. And then also, because I was kind of researching it, I, I was looking at clips from the film as well. And, and then I, I was imagining Mark Ruffalo, um, which is not bad, but that's yeah. my... <laughs> So I could hear his voice when I was reading it. Mm. So I think I was kind of maybe a little bit affected by that. But mm. um, I just find the pace just amazing. And I just mm. find it like so intriguing. And just um, that constant menace and just mm. her style as well. And, and mm. I've been looking into her because obviously Susanna Moore has her her auto- autobiography coming out. Or yeah. is out, Miss Aluminium. Yeah. Um, I was, it was really interesting to see what like why she wrote that and... She's had a lot of um, violence against her from mm. men. She's been mm. raped and um, she's sort of, um, yeah, had sort of a bad time with men, if seemingly from interviews I've... I've okay, yeah, I haven't um, read the book yet. I haven't well, done any research She says it. she kind of wrote it as a response to almost like it came from a place of rage and it, there is kind of, it links in with, you're probably going to talk about it later, um, the Mexican writer... Fernanda Melchor mentions mm. in in her in a podcast interview that she writes from a wound inside mm. herself, and I, mm. I really feel that with Susanna Moore as well. Yeah, and she also was sort of boxed off as a, a woman's writer that she because she was successful in that area, mm. and she thought, well, I'll, I'll show them I'm mm-hmm. gonna write the way it, uh, sort of a noir, noir thriller the way men would write it. Yeah, although she has done it in her own absolutely different way to anything I've read, like on that sort of topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like she's made a commentary about because there's so many shows and books about women being like butchered and killed yeah. in horrible ways, and she is talking about that, but it is really looking at that again. I think it comes back to that rather than saying, "Okay, we're going to make a piece of art about these these inevitable well, currently inevitable encounters and experiences that women have." Um, to also address that sort of, again, that embodied or phenomenological aspect of it where, you know, violence or the possibility of violence has seeps into absolutely everything. Um, and then Melissa Fabos, who wrote Abandon Me and her, her, I think, is it a memoir or a book of essays she has coming out next year? But another amazing author, um, she has this essay about being, you know, living in New York and waking up on multiple nights where there was a man on her fire escape looking in the window 
and she talks about she just had this line that really stuck with me which I'm I'm not going to be able to deliver verbatim but you know she's like is there any woman who has lived in a city and doesn't know the feeling of release when you get home and lock the door behind you and that really to me just captured so much of of the back, the background lingering, that constant simmering quality that um, has infiltrated into your gestures and thinking in ways that you're not even aware of. And something else I, something else I heard a while ago um, by a, so- a sociologist speaking, and I can't remember her name, but she said, you know, the definition of terrorism is when you change your behaviors because of a, the sense of a, an overwhelming threat. And she then went on to speak about women who will only park their cars within, if, you know, if they work in a certain building that has floodlights, they'll make sure they park Mm -hmm. their cars where the floodlights will reach them when they come out at night. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that more captures really well. It's just, and also that her character, Franny, has very much learned to live with, it's just part of her life. She's not constantly addressing it and she's not constantly challenging men about it. No, Um, she's very open to the men. And there are so many characters in the book that could possibly be a killer. Mm. (laughs) You don't know. And she has a lot of men sort of hanging around her and kind of coming across a bit creepy. Mm. It could be any one of them, but she's not really chastising any of them mm, she's, mm. she's very curious about what makes them tick yeah um, and I think in the sex scenes as well with Malloy you know when they're reenacting that where she she's been um attacked or she's been she's been robbed um and Malloy comes over and they reenact the the attack and they end up having sex you know she says I could feel his erection I said all right all right and mm-hmm. you know there's this she acquiesces yeah. verbally to um to his physical presence and um and I thought that that again I was like how I thought how far do we have to go into sexual encounters before we aren't actually mm-hmm. reenacting yeah. violent templates yeah. um and obviously she you know um more depicts it in quite a literal way but mm-hmm. I just thought it was so and the scenes are so hot like the sex scenes yeah. are so wonderful you know They're amazing like I was I when I like when I like a book I do lots of I look at old YouTube mm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> interviews yeah. with the actors and the writers and everything um but she said that um she she looked she was she felt quite nervous about writing the sex scenes mm. and she um because there's so many bad ones out there <laughs> she did a lot of research into like porn and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing and then she decided to take out any kind of emotion and make it very matter of fact Mm. which she has done Mm. um and so she's not sort of commenting on pleasure really it's just like well she'll say what happens but yeah yeah I thought I thought that was really interesting the way she wrote it that's true actually I don't yeah I don't know if at any stage Franny sort of reflects on her bodily like no one's like oh that was great yeah (laughs) good job but you get you kind of get the the idea that it was great yeah um and then also Mark Ruffalo in the scenes I thought was interesting Jane Campion was telling him and apparently she's always shouting on set Mm -hmm. um like uh, you don't have to apologize for being a man like you mm-hmm. know just you know be un- unapologetic about mm-hmm. it and you know be like you've permission to just be your unashamed you know masculine yeah. self who does what he wants mm-hmm. and 
and she's like, you're confident, you're confident, and <laughs> shouting at him during the sex scenes. And he's like, he was really nervous about it because yeah. he was like, um, Meg Ryan's dating Russell Crowe and like, am I going <laughs> to match up? And <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the film again now, knowing all this. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I didn't know any of that. That's gas. Um, yeah. Being, yeah. I'm sure someone shouting at you to be confident during a sex scene really does the it's trick. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. But it but it, I suppose it shows that sort of really Jane Campion is looking at that the idea of masculinity mm. which his character is like this um he's very sort of blokey but he's kind of Yeah, he's he he exudes this very traditional masculinity and I think that's something else I really like about in the cut is that it's not judgmental you know really to, no one is getting no one person is getting admonished and um again she's not chastising men and I think there is there there she's making very broad eloquent comments on on cultural issues but it's not um it's not anti-male mm-hmm. um it's anti-toxic masculinity and rape mm-hmm. culture yeah but the men who are around her in the world are fully resolved humans yeah. who are a product of their culture and upbringing the same as any of us are yeah yeah uh, which i found really refreshing as yeah. well yeah and also um i liked how the characters really wants to know what's happening like so she's marco fliss character marco fliss character is, <laughs> this is going to be mark to me um is a detective investigating these serial mm killings um, mm. and she's really fascinated by how they're killed mm. and in a different way to I feel like it's usually treated which mm. is oh my god isn't that awful what happened to that girl mm. you know it's more like sort of laborious of what happened and mm. she wants to imagine it and, mm. and, and kind of I don't know if it's to take the fear away or what but yeah um becomes more manageable if she knows or something yeah um, but I, I won't give anything away. But I just mm. it, it was like very well paced and quite yeah you know, yeah very yeah. dark and interesting ending. I thought yeah um, no the ending again without giving anything away the ending just left me gutted you know yeah. I just um, and again that feeling of reading a book where at the end where you say oh no but you also say of course yeah amazing like yeah. how it, like else could it end and yeah. I was. I just. I finished it here yesterday in this room, and um, we're in the library right now. <laughs> and I just sat here for a minute, and I was like, "Wow!" It just really affected me. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk a bit about Kia Wilson's books. Mm. I haven't read that, so I. In we eat our own. I was really refreshed by this willingness to look very closely at violence you know it's based on or it takes its initial kernel of inspiration from a film called cannibal holocaust that was released i think in the 80s and i've been meaning to watch it it's on i saw it's on movie and i am i've been meaning to watch it to get to get a fuller picture but Kay wilson talks about watching horror films when she was growing up you know, in friends' basements and things like this, um, and how she came to find huge comfort in the formula of the horror film, you know, where you see the a group of really good-looking white teenagers in a car in America, and they're going to the beach, and then, you know, they're going to die at the beach, or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. You, you know which girl's going to die. Yeah, you can always tell. God yeah. help her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
and how then she came also to feel the pleasure of having those or the thrill of having those expectations subverted. And that was something, again, that I... I'm really drawn to very much in a in film, like a film like Midsommar, or, you know, um, which came out, was it last last year? God, it feels so long ago. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I, it's... Well, the, it's yeah, I mean, it's not for everyone. It, yeah. And I, can t- I, I do see why some people... Um, Is it like the Wicker Man, I'm imagining it? Like there's, there's certainly Wicker Man elements mm-hmm. to it, yeah. Yeah, but it's quite graphic and, again, super stylized, but it, 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 I can see why some people... Um, would find it upsetting um but and actually when my partner and I went to see it I think a couple of people walked out of the cinema at one stage Mm -hmm. but um yeah so she talks about the the thrill of subversion within the horror genre and how Cannibal Holocaust was was a horror film that sort of asked the viewer why are you watching this what are you getting out of this um and of course there are broader questions again of why as a culture we are so drawn to depictions of violence Mm -hmm. and I think there's lots of ways of coming at it and I think with Kaya Wilson you know she talks about providing a space where you are spending time with violence without without it being it's violence sort of freed from the contours that typically surrounded so there's no there's no grief for example you know I think she has a reference to if a, if a woman's head implodes because she's been shot by a laser beam or something you know there's no one's grieving her like and yeah. there's no um there's no trial afterwards in which the murderer walks free mm-hmm. um so I'm interested in that in that argument that kind of gets towards notions of catharsis mm-hmm. um or just offering us ways to think about and talk about violence that we're currently not mm-hmm. privy to in every day yeah. life um certainly yeah. you know here you know we're like how do you begin to talk about violence and its repercussions and the type of people who commit violent acts in a way or violence that has happened to you like how do you begin mm-hmm. to talk about that in a way that is generative of better conversations or future conversations mm-hmm. um and that, yeah, so that was something I felt she she was doing in the book with her depictions of violence, what she felt Cannibal Holocaust to be doing in, in a visual um, cinematic depiction. And I will say that I do kind of oscillate between that argument for depictions of violence and then also feeling, you know, if we're, if we look at, if if we look at films and books about violence as warnings then you know are we taking the blame away from the perpetrator and putting it back onto the prey or the victim saying well you were warned there are all of these warnings surrounding mm-hmm. you and you still you know like what we were talking about yeah, earlier with, with Franny yeah. Yeah, yeah um but yeah and I thought and the book is just again like in the cut we eat our own it is so exceptionally well written um yeah, yeah. and I could not I was trying to eke it out. I started reading it on a Friday and I thought this is going to be really good for me writing on Monday. So I'm going to try yeah. and put it down for the weekend. And I just couldn't. couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. It's a great recommendation. I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah, it's fabulous. And I don't, yeah. she has, I, I, it came out a couple of years ago and, you know, then you look and you think this must have won every award there is and it must be a film now. Someone's bought the rights or where's her second and her third book and um, nothing has come out since. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's one of one of not 
one of my favorite books that I read this year, yeah. not published this year. But it's, well, you were yeah. talking there. I thought of the film Funny Games. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it Haneke or mm. yeah? And I think that was one of the bleakest mm. things. I like. I remember just feeling like like disturbed for days, and, mm. and I think. I am drawn to sort of violent films when they have a commentary on, mm. on something. And I think that's what he was doing there. It was mm. like, there's no hope in it. It's so yeah. bleak. And it, like people just are getting killed and they, and there's nothing. And the, he plans little things where you think they might get away and mm. they don't. Mm. Sorry if I'm ruining it for anyone. No, no. And, um, <laughs> oh, I forget other people will listen. Yeah, I, I've seen it. No problem. Um, so I think that whereas something like Saw or um, Hostel... I walked out of the cinema. Oh, I didn't actually. I regretted not walking out of the cinema <laughs> when I saw Hostel because that had no commentary on anything. Mm. It was just gore, and I know a lot of people like that. Mm. But I, I, I find that too disturbing. Whereas mm. I, I was disturbed in a better way with the um, funny games mm. because I knew what it was trying to say. You yeah, know? or there's some sort of inquiry going on, yeah, and even yeah. if it's not to everybody's taste, that there is the intention wasn't pure gratuitous compounding of narratives of well I suppose hostile like everybody gets butchered in that it's yeah. not just um people from minority demographics but yeah you do feel there's this this issue of um of like feeding it's a fine line I think like you know between feeding a problematic desire to um, consume straightforward acts of harm and then saying but these acts of harm um, maybe not always to the degree in hostile, but these are these are occurring. Yeah, that's and, what's so depressing. Yeah, or it's so hard to watch because you're like, there could be someone trapped in a in a yeah hostel. I mean, hostel. Yeah. I don't. I can't remember. <laughs> trapped in a basement somewhere. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to know this. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. Unless it's going to help, or like how we deal with something, or I, I don't. I'm or say. It, highlight why we're so obsessed with this kind of thing mm. and encourage it. I don't know. Yeah. Not that everything has to have a noble purpose sure yeah <laughs> yeah I, know. I suppose it is that idea of things yeah being gratuitous and shutting down conversations because they're so shocking as opposed yeah. to or even they don't have yeah they don't have to be conversations on panels and beautiful buildings but Just even in your seed. own yeah, yeah for your own thinking yeah later yeah, yeah. so yeah this I mean this is it's all quite quite dark but <laughs> <laughs> I'm very dark by nature I, yeah this is my Christmas podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and for the festive seasons rape and murder <laughs> uh, yeah, I did uh, someone asked me this morning um, oh, what, I was doing a podcast I was on the way and they're like well, what's it about I'm like uh, it's about femicide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah. I mean, it is. We could talk about a bit the Melchior hurricane yeah, yeah, season. Yeah, let's do that. Um, yeah. So, you sent me on a link um, of a podcast that you thought was great. Um, mm, David Neyman between the covers. Yeah, it's he's. Yeah, I've never listened to it before. Oh, it was my first incredible. One. Yeah, yeah. It's such a resource. Even when I'm teaching, I recommend students to listen to it. And I heard one author say every single episode is a masterclass and I do agree like he's yeah. um, he's an amazing reader and researcher and it's funny yeah. you listen to interviews and often the writers will say god damn you're such a good reader like he's so perceptive and <laughs> yeah. um yeah and so I'm, I'm delighted you got a chance yeah to... I'm definitely uh, going to be listening to more of those mm. um in my research <laughs> um so 
uh, Fernanda Mel- Melchor, 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 Melchor yeah. a Mexican writer. Um, he wrote Hurricane Season. Mm. So um, maybe you, you talk about that yeah, and what yeah. You like about the podcast. Um, so that again was a book. That was another recommendation from Louisa Raven Books. Um, I was really what what I found so um, alluring and impactful about that book is again. Well, first of all, there's an unapologetic lingering on acts of violence and this sort of incisive approach to violence where we're seeing horrific acts and um, horrific acts of, you know, in terms of sexual violence and drug-related crime are being depicted. Um, but And in that episode with David Naiman, that interview, you know, they talk about the risk of pornography when you're doing this in-depth kind of textual analysis in the literary form, you know, you are risking that that salacious, gratuitous effect that we've mm. been talking about. Um, but I really, I was really compelled by her decision to, because her background is in journalism, and I was just really compelled by her decision to treat an act of true crime. So she talks about, you know, there was this murder in Veracruz, a woman was killed, um, who the locals referred to as a witch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her question, like, who killed the witch? Like, who killed this woman? And her decision to get to the heart of that crime through fiction. And I love that idea of fiction as a form of research and yeah. fiction as generative of new knowledge or generative of new meanings um, in relation to real life mm-hmm. lived events. And also the structure of the book, this idea of, you know, a hurricane, like it's all these overlapping yeah. narratives. Uh, well, not overlapping, these concurrent narratives. And uh, there's one um, there's one character in the book, Norma, who is, um, I mean, we see, we see, we see the book, this event of the witch dying and her murder from the perspective of possible perpetrators. And we see, again, that deeply ingrained misogyny uh, coming through in different voices, male and female. And then Norma is a, um, is a young girl who's very much come through all of the perils of in-depth um, misogyny and chauvinism in Mexico um, and the kind of cultural specifications of um, of misogyny in Mexico and you know and alludes to she's almost like a case study of of femicide of the mm-hmm. of the risks of being a female body in that particular society right now and how um, how and how it's tied in with drug cartels and you know Sergio Gonzalez Rodriguez has this amazing book The Femicide Machine that talks very much about the introduction of the Ford economy into Mexico is breaking down this idea of the women um, women as homemakers um, women are now like in the factory alongside you and how that perpetuated a huge amount of violence against women and he kind of posits that as a real kernel in the femicide machine mm-hmm. so I'm kind of going into a tangent now, but um, yeah, hurricane season, it's just, again, an incredibly propulsive read that lingers in violence and asks questions about violence while, um, and and makes no apology in doing so. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting because she was saying she didn't know how to write it, and as we said before, she's writing from that wound. Mm. Um, But also, there's so much violence in Mexico obviously mm. against women and there's mm. like no repercussion for it so it's, mm. it's 
she was sort of afraid to write it but needed to write it as well so it's come from um, yeah. that kind of yeah and again passion. I think when people talk about a book being violent and a book being timely I'm going to get the I'm going to get the statistics wrong um, but Cristina Rivera Garza another amazing amazing Mexican author you know she wrote this piece and you know, the amount of women who are getting murdered in Mexico every day and the amount of women who are getting raped in Mexico every day, like it's in the thousands on a mm-hmm. daily basis. Mm-hmm. And again, like you say, the absolute lack of repercussions, like how, you know, at what, you know, how do you even begin to think about how printed words on a page respond to that kind of, mm-hmm. to that level of catastrophe, you know? Yeah. And um, and on mass crime, that does that that again bear, that you know because of government corruption, et cetera, et cetera. You yeah. know there is zero zero repercussions, zero consequence. So, in some ways, it's like what other kind of text could you write if you're not going to write a text that um, that lays mm-hmm. out the intricacies of of yeah. that? Yeah, I think it's yeah, like it's easy to talk about other countries and ignore the work we have yet to do here you know even the Belfast rape trial you know um and again that casual dismissal of female suffering and um and female voices that idea of you know your subaltern status and I think sometimes it's easy um or it's tempting it's not easy but it can be tempting to look at something like repeal and think Mm -hmm. we've come so far and of course we have but you know trans women still suffering madly um being you know we're still exporting trans healthcare, um and we are still like not prosecuting rape cases effectively yeah um and we do have wins of course but yeah um yeah yeah i think it's important that these books are addressing that so like um svetlana alexvich you have mentioned loads in podcasts um writing about women in war but then there's also um book i'm reading our bodies, their battlefields. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of this. Yeah, um, the book is written by um, Christina Lamb, and it it's like I just it's overwhelming read. It's basically goes through all these different genocides, so Rwandan genocide and the Bosnian mm. War. It in particularly just focusing on women's experiences mm. and how mass rape was. It's mm. unbelievable, like how much rape there was mm. and how it hasn't really been treated as a like a war crime mm. i think there's, there was only only i'm not sure if this has changed but i think there's only one conviction mm. um which happened after the Rwanda, Rwanda um of someone being convicted for rape in in war um it's before that it's been kind of seen as and still it kind of is but, um spoils of war mm. it's not mm. given the attention of like women's experience which is just so horrific when especially like when you read like in serbia like there was like Mm -hmm. it's just like a hotel set up with women who were raped repeatedly all day yeah and there was one where there's like (coughs) one hotel with 200 women in it children um, Mm -hmm. and only like 10 survived that because they were jumping out windows and Mm -hmm. stuff this is um it's really really hard read but it's also Mm -hmm. really fascinating and it shows that um the aftermath and what women came together and how they, especially in Serbia, how they actually got loads mm. of war criminals mm. tried um, and, and put in jail and just how what happens afterwards, the after effects of that mm. um, and how women's 
they're yeah women's bodies are kind of used against them and they're just seen as yeah. so disposable yeah and so even we think of you know japan korea comfort women and that mm-hmm. idea of like you're saying women suiciding rather than um continue that existence and mm-hmm. just in passing so just because it's kind of um prevalent to what we're talking about is obviously we're coming now into the 1921 centenary you know the celebrations and the commemorations and you know again there's this um overhanging issue of women's experiences during the civil war here not being identified um or not being illumined or addressed yet and i did a commission for rte that's going to be um uh, aired in the new year as part of a series called spoken stories which is about this idea of freedom um a hundred a hundred years on and i decided to try and address some of the um you know some some of the issues that still pertain to women in terms of daily violence and and sexual precarity that were that were used again in this weaponized sense by both sides by anti-treaty forces by british soldiers during the war and this idea you know women being raped women being um abused as this sort of mechanism of vengeance between sides and and women being raped for if they were seen speaking to British soldiers you know um and likewise if women were seen to have any strong affiliation with the IRA have been passing messages being raped and yeah we have this letter from Mary M now to her parish priest that's been getting a lot of airtime and there's been some amazing research done um, around you know women's experiences after the fact and women left with children as the product of rape and trying to get some level of support because you know they had to send the child to Dublin they could you know mm-hmm. and to a school or to be taken care of by um by a home because they couldn't continue to live in their community with the shame of a, a pregnancy out of wedlock, B, a pregnancy from rape, uh, C, the fact of having been raped, mm-hmm. you know, um, this, yeah, this mire that women yeah. are well, entering into. It seems to be worldwide as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it's so, when you even look at France and the way women were, women who were seen to have had sexual relations with German soldiers and, you know, they were shaved in public and made to swallow castor oil so they would soil themselves in public um, and how each, I mean, it's there's variations of it globally, mm-hmm. um, as you say, but how, the interesting thing, I suppose, is how when we talk about reparative justice, how each... Mm-hmm. nation um yeah how closely they're willing to look or and what kind of work they're willing to do yeah and yeah I suppose, so i see which is a long way of saying i think um melchor and hurricane season has um comes in at a really incisive angle um in those conversations and yeah it, yeah. yeah i feel yeah i think in rwanda i'm still reading the book but they seem to have tried to do a lot in the way of helping those victims, and mm. they, they did make up a, a word which I can't remember right now, um, that describes that represents calling them heroes, but um, mm. it actually was kind of used against them. They were mm. ostracized to some degree as mm. well. So even though there has been some progress in that, mm. um, it also the community have rejected a lot of the, those women as well. Yeah. Um, well, that's the other thing. You know, the that I should be clear that example with France and Germany like often these women would have been raped by German soldiers but mm-hmm. after the fact they were called something like horizontal traitors okay. to yeah. to allude to the fact that they had gone to bed with 
yeah. these men and again yeah. yeah there'll be films that romanticize that as well like yeah um, um, that one with um is it sweet francais i'm i'm thinking of the brad pitt one I, where he says to the young soldier he's like if you don't take that girl into the bedroom or something and the idea <laughs> yeah. that you know she's there delighted with these sold these american soldiers coming in but sweet francais i remember i read the book of that but i didn't see the i didn't um, see the film yeah, I might be wrong because I haven't actually read the book and I saw it a lot. But I think um, is Michelle Williams' character. Um, I just go by the actress' names. Is she French? And then um, the guy is German. Yeah, soldier, and they kind of fall in love. Um, so it's just, you know very mixed messages. Yeah, you know, and the, the people are sort of also living through it. And, you, mm. and, and who's anyone to comment on how people survive yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and what and what feels like survival at the time yeah and what prism we want to look through these narratives now mm-hmm. um just to make them palatable or not even palatable but just to begin conversations about yeah. them like again we are so lacking in vocabulary yeah. and which is again i think what um what texts, what literary, te- what novels that look at violence do is like start to equip us with some of that vocabulary yeah. so we can start even like basic conversations. Like with Follow Me, I was trying to think about, you know, our preconceptions of predator and prey and what does a predator look like and what does a victim look like. And obviously I'm doing it in a sort in a very stylized extreme way with Ada, who's a girl who people who people perceive as a girl and don't think that she would be capable of violence. But there's all mm-hmm. sorts of people who commit violence and we look at them and and can't imagine either mm-hmm. because of how they present publicly or the way they were brought up or, you know, mm-hmm. con- um preconceived notions we have about their background and their experience and how they move through the world there's all sorts of people who are committing yeah. heinous acts that we can't it, conceive of there is a part in the book which i want to look into more because i've never really thought about it too deeply but mm. um i'm not going to remember the term but there is like if you wonder like, how could anyone want to rape someone when there's so much violence or mm. like how could they be aroused like how could that mm. be a thing but there's something similar to arousal that's adrenaline and anger mm, and rage mm. um, and that that's where they're coming from yeah um, yeah because it just seems unfathomable that mm. especially in the Rwanda with people hacking people with yeah. hatchets how why would how, and then yet someone raping them lying next to them like yeah. how could that be a thing that someone would want to do yeah the concurrency of sex and violence and again I think you know if we think about that sex isn't always an act of desire sex is often an act of control or a way to exert control yeah or the root impulse is violence and control that manifests in a sexual way. So maybe you're not starting with sex. You're not starting certainly with anything that we mm-hmm. would think of as um, intimacy or even lust. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's a mechanism for wielding a, sorn, a certain sort mm-hmm. of control over, yeah. over a person, um, yeah. which again, I think is, I think if we can take the sex out of rape sometime you know yeah and even a show like the fall i thought was interesting um for how i mean problematic i like i love gillian anderson and stella gibson i watch that woman eat soup but yeah. you know there, there are problematic things about that show but when we think of you know yeah like it, and i think it for people who have been victims of sexual violence part of the issue for them speaking about it later is that people are still looking at rape as a 
as a sexually intimate mm-hmm. act, um, which it often is, you know, it's a, it's a, you're in a space of comfort and safety that is then horribly subverted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we can take the sex out of talking about rape to a certain degree and yeah. think like it's, it's a violent act that is that, manifested yeah, sexually. They're trying to do in, in the UN or they're trying to change, like it, they um, have a, the wording that they've made now is like, it's not penetration. It's, mm. it's, um, it can be, the, like you say, the control mm. of someone. It can be that kind of um, de- a violation, de- yeah, yeah. De- degrading treatment. Yeah. Or, so it, yes, that that's a good, a good point. Was taking mm. the sex out of it. Mm. One, I suppose, a positive thing which I think relates to how you, you write about the earth as well is that there's a lot of this the um, Croatian women that went through all different types of. Um, healing therapy with with um, this sort of organization that was set up to help them and nothing really had an effect until they started dealing with um, planting seeds and growing things and okay. horticulture and apparently that really really helped mm. them because they had lost their husbands and their sons and they they were in the ground mm. and they were kind of that sort of physical idea mm. of, of um, reaping yeah what they sowed and, and yeah. planting things and then sort of making a living from that, that seemed to be something that really helped. Mm. It reminds me of, do you know Doris Salcedo, the artist? No. She's done amazing work around, um, she'd be very much, she's a visual artist, it's, um, predominantly sculpture and kind of um, site-specific installations, but she'd be very much on the same spectrum as Melchor for me, where she does this intense work with survivors of political violence or with those who have been in some way bereaved by political violence. And, um, yeah, just she makes these amazing... She had a show at Emma called On Morning, and there are these massive tables that are put um, one on top of the other, and there's a thin layer of soil uh, between the two between the two tabletops. So, mm-hmm. you know, one's upside down, one's upside down on top of the other. And the soil slowly produces grass that comes up through the cracks. Oh, I mean, that's yeah. just one piece. She has another piece of, of rose petals sewn together and preserved, this huge, huge piece that is a, a tribute to it, to a nurse that was killed. Um, and again, no zero repercussions for her death. And um, yeah, there's... I've gone off on a tangent. You can cut great. that bit out, but um, yeah, you might find that interesting as well. Um, yeah, 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 I love installations. I, find, I I don't have the language to talk about them, but I love how they make you feel. Yeah. So again, that idea of like what art, the kind of work art can be. Yeah, so doing healing, and especially because yeah. um, a lot of the women mightn't be the most educated women mm. in, in these sort of um, atrocities. So mm. like talking therapy and also they're not very open mm. in their cultures um talking about emotions so like therapy doesn't really work mm. on them so, the, mm. so that physical kind of um gardening yeah. actually worked and there's yeah. that whole idea of you know somatic therapies that a writer like banu kapil who i could talk about all day you know she is very much a writer operating in this realm of text answering um a somatic impulse in the body and that idea of how you address the reptilian part of the brain where trauma is lodged in a way other than talking 
therapy, you know, like how you can, like via muscular stimulation, how you can release trauma through light tapping and how do you make a text that performs, that is that activity of light tapping. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She's incredible. My God. She, yeah. She's wonderful. So I I love reading about PTSD. Um, (laughs) Oh yeah. Favorite, favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) The um, body keeps the score. Have you Mm, No, I haven't, but I think uh, it's one that I've been saving for myself again for a really long time. Yeah. It does go into that with trauma and the part of the brain that controls speech shuts down and mm. um, possibly because when you're you're running away from the tiger mm. that famous saber tooth tiger yeah. uh, you don't have time to talk it you need yeah. to concentrate on, yeah. on what will get you away yeah um but also reliving it, it they've done like scans and seen that that part of the brain goes really like really, mm. really small and mm. That's why it's so hard to talk about your trauma and talk mm. about what happened. You physically, like your brain is working against you, won't yeah. let you speak. Yeah. Um, so I find that really, really interesting. And Elaine Scarries or Scarry, I'm never sure how to, but the body and pain, you know, she talks about that sort of how language or how pain evades language and, yeah. you know, thinking about torture victims and, yeah, um, yeah. yeah and how it's just, it's not, again, it's something, even the fact of Fernanda Melchor's hurricane season having this hurricane, the hurricane is almost a formal mechanism for the book, like this mm-hmm. swirling, um, swirling cacophony of voices, mm-hmm. that how do you begin to capture something like trauma in a text? Yeah. Um, and what does text have to do in order to, be traumatic on the page and not just uh, um, a, a representation of mm-hmm. trauma, but in some way, you know, entering into the aftermath of trauma and, yeah. and PTSD. Yeah. Um, maybe to sort of just show that you do read widely. <laughs> are there any books that are that you that you love that are not that are, grim? <laughs> yeah, like just like opposite. <laughs> oh goodness. Okay. Yeah, I love all of Elena Ferrante, which is so standard. Um, but I loved her, her last book, The Lying Life of Adults. I, oh my God. She's incredibly popular and yeah. with book clubs here. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, as my dad got me my first book of hers, he got me My Brilliant Friend for Christmas and I was just hook, hooked after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just read um, the, the Harpy by Megan Hunter. Oh, I read that too. Yeah. Oh, I loved that. I loved that. It was so good. And actually, I meant to... So bring it up today because it's it talks about violence. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. That's a bad example. We can cut that out. Um, no, but it, it's. It, I read that like straight through. That was great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose I do end up dwelling quite a lot on um, on books that have some sort of thread of violence running through them because I do find them. That's your thing. As a writer, you yeah. have to have a thing. But um, like, I just read. I read the Mirror and the Light, the Hilary Mantel over oh, yeah. uh, over lockdown. Anne Enright's last book, Actress. I just adored. I actually. I got a proof of that from my editor last year and I just I think that I I love her I think she's she's a stunning writer yeah um so yeah and I read Silent Woman by Janet Malcolm you know a good literary biography or memoir really gets me going as well yeah yeah I have to I've read the harpy but I definitely want to read um actress and the other one um, I was so disappointed it didn't get it wasn't on the booker um, yeah because yeah, I just I think it's um, um, so skillful and so skillful and I saw her give a reading um, a couple of uh, god geez, I keep saying a couple of months ago but it was probably in February <laughs> um, and I love the way she reads mm-hmm. you know she kind of, she has the book in her hand but she's barely glancing at it and you feel when she starts reading it's a continuation of her 
previous sentence, you know, yeah, like she's yeah. so, and I love listening to her like on the New Yorker, you know, she's often on the podcast for New yeah, Yorker fiction. Yeah. And um, I just think, I think she's just such a gem. I think we're so lucky to is, have yeah. her, you know. Yeah. So maybe just to wrap up, you, mm. you could tell me about your new book and, and sure congratulations that's coming out next year thanks looking forward to reading it yeah yeah no I'm delighted now proofs came in there um last week which is always really nice mm. when you start to get a sense of how it'll look in the world or um or yeah. feel in people's hands um yeah it's about it's about the aftermath of a commune um a failed commune and its primary relationship is twins these twins Adam and Anna and they they're sort of living under the belief that the that the end of the world is is quite is imminent but the issue is that it's been imminent for quite some time and um adam stays up all day and sleeps at night and sort of tends to domestic tasks and anna um sleeps all day and then is up all night kind of um being quite watchful of the perimeter and the surrounding woodland and again it's in a strange I love the strange landscapes just can't seem to write a book that isn't set in a strange landscape um with something dodgy going on so it's them and their it's very much about their belief system in light of living in a place that's sort of increasingly hostile to human occupation it's not it's not dystopian it's not post-apocalyptic or I mean Mm -hmm. sort of touches on elements I suppose but it is very much about human relationships um and and they're so it's them and their leader their former leader cone who is becoming increasingly sickly and um they're the only three people living in in this ruined failed commune until um members start to come back former members start to come back and they and and questions start to arise as to the nature of what they believe yeah. and the nature of what they've been told. Great, that sounds really interesting. That, hopefully, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens with the proof then? Is it, is it? Do you have to go through more changes then, or is it just? Hopefully not. Hopefully yeah. not. <laughs> I saw someone tweeting the other day. It's like, oh, you know, proofreading, or as I like to call it, draft ten of the, <laughs> you know. Um, but so it, the proof is sort of predominantly for. Um, for reviewers okay. to take a look at um, booksellers, yeah. I'll be sending one to Louisa. Um, you know who might who might like it enough to recommend it, and then okay. writers who might be generous enough to give yeah. it a blurb. You know, it's kind of oh, like yeah, a rough yeah. and ready okay. copy of yeah. the. It's not a finished copy. Um, it's not a hardback. It doesn't. It's you know not. Yeah. Um, very finely polished but it's got the cover and it's got yeah, the yeah. words inside and one of the really nice things about being a published writer is that people send you proofs you know yeah. and you get to read books before they before That's they've amazing. come out yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it's one of the huge huge perks for me is yeah, yeah just seeing what your peers are yeah, up to really and helpful, yeah. yeah and creating a bit of a community as well yeah and yeah. often agents and editors can be kind of apologetic about asking because you know um typically there are a lot of proofs in transit at any one time but I just love I love getting them I love getting them well thank you very much for joining me that was thank um, you for having me interesting and um I hope not too dark I hope not too dark (laughs) but I you know maybe I'll put a warning in the (laughs) a trigger warning (laughs) sure yeah and so thanks a lot no thank you (laughs) 